some of these women, when I reached out and I told them this was a book for junior high, middle grade girls, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I got the exact same response from every single one of them, which was, I get so many requests for interviews, dozens a day, hundreds a week. And I always say no, unless it's probably the Wall Street Journal, whatever. No one's ever said they want to write a children's book about me. I wish there was a book when I was a kid who not only taught me what entrepreneurship was, but had a person who looked like me in the book. I need to do this so that girl who looks like me can say, oh my gosh, she did it. And yeah, I have parents just like that. Or I came from the same country or I speak the same language or I get teased that exact same way at school. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Hi, everyone. Sid Finkelstein here. This is the Sidcast, the podcast where I talk to really interesting, engaging people, often people you never heard of or you never knew. But once you listen in, you kind of wish you did. And I think my guest today is definitely going to qualify with that description. My guest is Loey Bundy-Sickle. Loey is an award-winning children's author. She actually has an MBA from, yes, the Tuck School, a former student of mine. She's become a children's book author, but books about entrepreneurship and business, which is really quite a cool idea. There are two people in this season of the Sidcast that write books for kids and do it in a very different way. Lowy writes business books. And later in the season, I'll have Lori uh, Walmart, who writes books about technology and science for kids. Lowy's nonfiction series, From an Idea to, is the first entrepreneurship and business book series for kids and the recipient of several literary awards. Her latest book is Idea Makers, 15 Fearless Female Entrepreneurs, published in 2022, where she shares the incredible stories of 15 of America's greatest female founders. She's got another book coming up next year called Cookie Queen which is the first entrepreneurship picture book. It shares the story of Kathleen King and her inspiration for building Tate's Bake Shop, which is a great brand of cookies that I've enjoyed many times. Loey has an interesting background. She used to write case studies for business school professors, many of which have been published in textbooks. She worked in brand management. She's been very active in marketing for a long period of time. She came across this idea of writing books for kids because she always knew how to write. You know, when you write a case study, you're kind of writing a mini story of sorts. And she has a voice that works for kids. She has her own kids, of course, who are fans, but many other people as well. I like the idea so much that my wonderful great niece, Hallie, who was turning 10 this summer, I sent her a couple of Loewy's books and Loewy was kind enough to actually sign them to Hallie in honor of her birthday. Hallie is a budding author herself and a wonderful kid, a beautiful young girl who is doing all kinds of interesting work of her own, even though she's only 10 years old. So I'm sure she's going to be inspired. Loie and I talk about a lot of different things, of course, about her books and the ideas and where the ideas came from. But what was the writing process like? How do you get the voice, the right voice for a kid that they really get? Loie goes to schools, many, many, many schools and does readings and does a lot of outreach work for kids and really has been inspired to write these books, not just because she knows how to do this, because this is kind of what she does, but because creating things as an entrepreneur is a very powerful method of having an impact on society in a positive way. Loie and I talk about that, and in particular, Loie's passion for supporting and emphasizing female founders and entrepreneurs that are women that have created great things is really compelling and I think motivational for a lot of people. So it was really exciting for me to talk to Loie. I've enjoyed it, and I know you will too, because she's not just a great writer, but she's very personable and is a great communicator across the board. And I think once you listen, and as you listen to this episode, you have a kid, especially a young girl, but not only, in your life, whether a daughter, a granddaughter, a great niece, like in my case, or just a neighborhood friend, you're probably gonna want her to know about some of Loie's books. So without any further ado, Loey Bundy Sickle on the Sidcast. Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today is Loey Bundy Sickle. Hi there, Loey. Hi, Sid. How are you? 
I'm great. Thanks for joining me. I've had some book authors, of course, in some previous episodes, but I don't know that I've ever had a children's book author. And I'm very interested in actually the whole field of kids' books. You have a particular genre in particular in that you write books for children about business and entrepreneurship. So where did this idea come from? First of all, it was absolutely nothing I ever intended to do growing Mm -hmm. up. I was never that kid who dreamed of being an author. I went into business. I went into marketing right after college. And there was kind of that aha day where I think business school would be a great fit for me. I had a brother who was at Tuck at the time, and I remember emailing him and saying, what do you think about Tuck and me at business school? And oh, yeah, that'd be a great fit. So I did the typical tours. I landed at Tuck and I just did the typical MBA thing. Well, my internship was at General Mills. I was the marketing club person, mm-hmm. wanted a job in brand management and ended up working at Gorton Seafood. Did that for a couple of years until my husband came home one day and said, I think I'd really like to go to Tuck. And at the time I was pregnant with twin babies and thinking, and I had childcare all lined up and I had it all figured out. And I thought, oh my gosh, we're moving back up to Tuck. So he gets in and really my first foray into writing was we're back up at Hanover, New Hampshire. And I'm thinking, what in the world am I going to do? I just got my MBA. I had it all planned out. I was going to be a brand manager and I don't know what to do now. And so (laughs) I actually started talking to professors and said, you know, is there anything I can do for the next two years? And same answer came back to me over and over again was, we need a case writer. We need a writer. Mm-hmm. And I, I could do that for a couple of years. So that was shift number one. So I started writing case studies and it was the perfect thing to be doing while my husband was getting his MBA and we had these twin babies and I was kind of like in that academic environment and it was great. What's your husband's first name? Adam. Adam. So did Adam ever do a case study in class while a student that you had written? <laughs> I am not sure. He was a real estate guy. I was mostly writing case studies for Kevin Keller. So it was a lot of marketing case studies. So he must have taken a marketing class. He must have. I just think that's kind of funny to think about that he's (laughs) flipping through the case and reading it the night before and you're peeking over and saying, oh, interesting. Yeah, I know how this goes. What do you think of question number two? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He would get annoyed by me because he'd do like the chicken lens case and be like, oh, I remember that one. I fully annoyed him the entire two years, but (laughs) it was all good. The big question is, how did I become a children's writer? Because right now I'm writing MBA case studies. We moved to Chicago, where I'm originally from, and my phone started to ring. And it was professors at Kellogg who had heard I was writing case studies at Talk. And at the time, I thought I would kind of go back into the brand management world. But at the time, I was pregnant with baby number three. And I thought, oh, well, I guess I could keep this going. This is kind of working out. I'll do it for a couple more years. The next thing you know, I just had this nice little business going. My husband, Adam, after a few years of working in the real estate world, decided he wanted to start his own business. You have to manage that work-life balance and everything. And I kept thinking, well, this writing thing is kind of a good gig. And so as I'm writing more and more about literally every company out there, and it was always in the marketing strategy world. It was never finance or accounting or anything like that. But I kept thinking as my kids are getting older and they're going through elementary school, like this idea sits with me year after year that there should be books like this for kids. And I can't get this idea out of my head, but I'm thinking just one day I'll walk into a bookstore and there they'll be. Mm -hmm. I couldn't kick the idea. I actually ran the idea by my mother, who at the time was a world-renowned early childhood educator. She had been a teacher for a while. She was running this nonprofit organization about early childhood. She just really is a well-respected person. And I said, what do you think about case studies for kids? And she looked at me with the worst eyes possible (laughs) and said, Loie, this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. There's no child in the world who wants to read about business. And I'm like, okay, I actually respect my mom's opinion. I've now learned not to. (laughs) I thought, oh, wow, it's that bad of an idea. Okay, well, then I'll try to shelf it. And I couldn't, couldn't shelf it. It really came down to this one day. So at the time, my youngest son, whose name is Tucker, not named after Tuck, but coincidentally, we named him Tucker. He was in second grade. 
And I'm still writing case studies. I'm starting to think about it's probably time I go back into the brand management world or whatever. All the parents get invited to a second grade classroom where we learn the kids have turned their entire grade into a business, a town where every child has partnered up with a co-founder and they have launched their own business. So there were kids who ran an airline and a coffee shop and a bank and a movie theater. And I walk in and I go... I'm sorry, mom, but kids want to learn about business. (laughs) And that was like my big aha day. And I started working on my first book that afternoon. That afternoon. I love that. You know, now that you say it, I think about when my daughter was very young and what we would play, she would like to play store. And of course, I had to say what I wanted to buy and she would go find the little toys that were the equivalent and charge me some price, three cents and two cents. She wasn't so good at pricing in those days. And she did stuff like that with her friends. So yeah, I think there's something there. It's kind of surprising though that your mom, well, she has to have come around seeing that you've done this for a while and it's been a big hit. She has. I remember my first book launch. She said, are you going to tell the story of how I told you this was such a bad idea? And I said, no, I don't think so. I'll wait for them to be successful before I tell people you think this is a bad idea. That's funny. But yeah, it was funny. She mentioned your mom just almost in passing that she's a world-renowned child expert. Well, there has to have been some connection there, even though you weren't thinking about it when you were younger, I guess. How was she influential, do you think, in uh, stuff you ended up doing? despite the specific story about saying this is a bad idea. I certainly think she was very influential. She was always a wonderful teacher in town, Mm -hmm. very focused on play and learning through doing, very anti-plop your kid in front of a TV in the 80s, which a lot of parents did. She was go out and play and learn. And the school system we grew up in was a very progressive education school system. I definitely think it influenced me throughout my life and even just how I raise kids and how I think about them just experimenting and learning and in education and what I write about. Because I think it's pretty cool that schools now are really embracing teaching kids about entrepreneurship. And I think it goes back to this learn through doing, learn through failure, learn through experimenting and inventing. And so it kind of all circles back. And then interesting, my father was an investment banker. When I stepped back and I'm like, oh yeah, my books are about business and entrepreneurship and their children's books kind of was like, aha. Yeah. And a lot of my books are about how influenced entrepreneurs are, business leaders are by their childhood and their parents who raised them. And I'm such a good example of that. Right. You ended up writing these books about kids. I'm going to ask you about some of the stories people can't see right now, but you've got a bunch of your books behind you, maybe even read a little bit. But how old are your readers? Is it a wide spectrum or is it pretty narrow around, say, middle school? My book series that I launched with is called From an Idea To. And each book is the story of a different company. So there's From an Idea To Google, From an Idea To Nike, Lego, and Disney. So those are the first four that came out. The sweet spots really are grades four and five, I've learned, but it kind of spans between three and six. So if you're talking ages, what is that? Eight to 11 is kind of the sweet spot. Then I have a new book that just came out in March, and that is called Idea Makers, 15 Fearless Female Entrepreneurs. And it's 15 chapters, and each chapter features the story of a different female entrepreneur and her journey, 15 mini stories. And that's, excuse, a little bit older. That's more of like a middle school, junior high book, ages 11 to 14. Loie, why do you think it's third to sixth grade is the sweet spot? Did you discover that or you knew that? And are you writing to what's going on in the lives of kids? Because your kids either are that age or were that age, depending how old they are now. But I'm curious about that, finding out that that's the sweet spot in terms of the greatest interest. So when I wrote the books, my kids were in that age group. I think my son was in second grade and my daughters were in sixth grade. So kind of on either end of that. Probably I got lucky in a little bit where like I was tuned into that writing and what books looked like for that age group and thinking this age group really needs books like this. Now, what I've learned, because I have talked to kids as young as kindergarten, first grade, and as old as seventh and eighth grade, I've learned that when you get to about third, fourth, fifth grade, this is such an amazing age. And I didn't know this going in, but this is what I've learned. They are incredibly brave. They are incredibly creative. They are incredibly excited to share their ideas. They're not too cool yet but they're really bright. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like they're mini entrepreneurs. 
they all think they're going to solve the world with like flying cars (laughs) and stuff like that. When you get to junior high, they start to get a little like they don't want to speak up. Oh, no, no, this is cool. And I have an eighth grade. My son is now in eighth grade. So like I get that age group too, but they think they all have it figured out, but they're insecure. And the little ones don't quite get it. Third, fourth, fifth grade, sixth grade. It's such a special age. And I think the more we can tell them about what's out there and what they can dream of being and that when you tell these stories of people who were just regular kids like them and look what they created, my hope is that it really helps them to dream big and know what it takes to succeed. This age category you're talking about, now that you elaborate on it, doesn't actually surprise me in a way because I've seen it as well in terms of the bravery, courage, and they're just ready to do stuff. They're not self-conscious, which is really a powerful thing because that's all down when we start worrying about what other people think. That just creates problems for everyone. And I remember when my daughter was in, I think it was third grade and then fifth grade, I created a little writing club after school for her friends. A lot of kids wanted to do. We had as many as a dozen, which was a bit complicated. I had to feed them the second they show up because that's what you do. And then (laughs) they all had their little book and they would write stories and then they would read them. I'd give them prompts and they loved it. I think it's probably right to say their favorite game. It's one that right teachers have done and maybe it'd be useful for you. I don't know. It was called pass around game. So they all start with the same prompt and they write for could be two minutes or three minutes. And then I say pass and they pass their book to the kid next to them. I love that. And then the kid has to pick up the story exactly where it is. And then you pick up the story, you know, that was given to you. And then you end up going around if there's enough time that everyone has a chance or a handful have a chance to write. And then it goes back to the originator and they read the story and they're laughing their heads off about how it changed. And I haven't analyzed why they loved it so much. I mean, it's fun. It's not intuitively we get it, but there is something there about the art of creation and seeing what other people are doing. And then the genuine surprise, I think, that they feel. You know what I mean? Yes, because surprise and there's kindness too. You know, you jump to eighth graders if you're doing that. It's like, oh, that was such a stupid story. <laughs> now we're like fifth graders are like, that was really creative. I never thought of it that way, which is what you want. <laughs> you said that kids are learning about entrepreneurship, even in schools a little bit. And that surprised me a bit. I mean, you had that example from your kids of creating a town, which is great. But do you ever come across people who say this is not what kids should be learning? This is business. The whole world's business. America is a capitalist society. We should be talking about helping other people. This type of line of argument. So what I find is there are markets and states even that love me and they love my books and they love my message. And those are the ones who ask me to come talk to their schools. And those are the ones I work with. Texas loves me. Like <laughs> My books have won awards. The teachers are amazing. There's a high percentage of kids whose parents have immigrated to the United States. And that's an important message to share with them. Like I share with them stats of X number of entrepreneurs. I don't know, founders, I'm making this up now, but you know, founders of Fortune 500 companies, X percent are immigrants or children of immigrants. And there's been studies that you are actually more likely to succeed because you have seen more parts of the world. You think differently, you understand different cultures, different languages, whatever. And so these are important messages for kids who sometimes don't have a lot to think, oh my gosh, like I have an advantage over some kid in a wealthy suburb of New York City. So Illinois, I mean, I'm in Illinois, Mm -hmm. but they've been really wonderful the Chicago area. Texas is great. Wisconsin recently embraced me. California has been great. I've really traveled to so many schools. I've been in Boston recently, been New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio. I went to rural Ohio. I'm in cornfields and all of a sudden they have these school systems where they pull from about 25 miles around them and there are these brand new schools and I'm talking to the entire class or the entire school from about third grade to eighth grade. And it's interesting, you know, and you're talking to these kids and some of them are like, oh, I want to be a farmer or like a truck mechanic. And then they're like, well, actually, I have this new idea about like how my dad can change his tractor to do this. They never knew like, oh, that's an entrepreneurial idea. So it's really cool. So I've really seen it across the country, teachers embracing this new way of thinking. Another thing I try to make very clear in the beginning is the difference between inventors and entrepreneurs. And I give the example of Thomas Edison. I start off my author visit with, let's talk about ideas and it's a little bit more polished than this, but let's talk about a light bulb. The light bulbs are a symbol for an idea and who invented the light bulb. And they're all, oh, Thomas Edison, Thomas Edison. And then I pull up the list of names of people who had a patent for a version of a light bulb dating back 40 years before Edison. And I talk about why is Edison 
and the inventor. It's like, well, he's actually not just the inventor. He's the entrepreneur. And he was a great entrepreneur. And what does that mean? And so we talked about how he was really great at working with X, Y, and Z and stuff. I think teachers have always been excited about inventing and invention conventions and invention fairs. But it's like, wait a second, inventors who no one uses their product, <laughs> what, that doesn't change the world, but entrepreneurs do. That's kind of my kickoff message. The schools you visit, do they do a bunch of other things in connection to your visit? And you actually have a program where you suggest if you want to make this into a module as part of class, where you're there, they read a book or two of your books, but then they do some projects. Is that part of what you try to do as well? I don't. Every school district is different. Every school district has its curriculums they got to follow and things like that. But what I do find is that the springtime is when teachers are thinking about creative projects and inventions and entrepreneurship or career days. So all these different things I fit into, even STEM. And because my books span, you know, from Disney to Nike to Google to Lego to all the companies in my new book, I can kind of touch upon a lot of different aspects that could fit into a big program. But a lot of times it is tied into something they're doing. There's been like career day weeks or invention. They all have cute names like invention convention, inventor fairs or creative fairs. They all have different names, but it's usually something along the lines of that. It's interesting about almost the philosophy of education for anyone, but for kids and the idea of having applied projects that are practical is very powerful. Of course, you have to learn. It's not exactly theory that you learn when you're grade three or four, but you are learning how to read and write. Right. And that's core and you got to do it. But the application of why you do arithmetic or science and how it has practical implications. I think education in general has not done as good a job. Our entire industry has not done as good a job in making it clear why you need to learn. I mean, how many times have you heard from kids? I don't know why I need to study. Why do I need to study calculus? Well, not everybody needs to study calculus, but if you're going to do lots of different careers, that's really, really useful for you to know. And I think that's true probably for every category. Why do I have to read some novel that was written in 1880? And being able to make the connection to something that is not just practical, but is experiential and meaningful. Now, what I just said, I think there'll be a bunch of people who won't like it whatsoever because they believe in the, an educated person just needs to know these things. But I think that's a tough battle. I think that's hard to do. So what you're doing, even at a very, very young age, is making it come alive, which is, I think, very cool. How do you go about doing this? So I know what it's involved writing a case study. I've written many myself. This is kind of <laughs> like a case study, but not exactly. I mean, a case study for those people who don't remember them from school or never had them. It's basically a mini history of a company and a situation at a point in time. It ends with a dilemma or a problem or a conflict. And students have to kind of figure that out. I imagine that that's not how you end the books that you're writing. But the process to get there in describing the history, how similar or dissimilar is it from the case writing days? It is almost identical. When I was writing case studies, I kind of had a formula where I would do background, you lead up to the company itself, and then the problem. Really what I do is I just solve the problem for you. I tell them how the problem got solved, but it's really just a formula. I always start every single story. I start with the founder as a child because I want the child, the reader to relate in somehow. I don't care if it's Disney and, oh, he loved animals or he loved to draw or he was the class clown or he hated living in this area, but whatever it is, I want them to relate with something like, oh my gosh, Disney, he was the class clown. He kind of got in trouble. Oh yeah, that's me too. Or Phil Knight, he was super competitive and his dad was tough and his mom was quiet and sweet and something where the kid can connect with the founder as a child. And then it is, okay, where'd the idea come from? So there's something from kid to idea, things happened. So it could be jobs, it could be skills they learned, it could be a trauma, it could be something. So, you know, whatever. And then ultimately I've got to get to the idea. So that's probably quarter of the way through the book is the idea. Like all good case studies, there's good stuff. You're building it up and then there's like a crash, sort of. It just always is. Those are great learning points. I tell that, I explain what the options were and how they got through that. And then in some cases, you've got the founder dies. Lego is a good example. Walt Disney is a good example. And now you got like part two of the story. All right, so who's taking over if the founder has died? We go through there. I always make sure because I do come across business terms while I'm writing. Part of it is I'm telling a story, but I want to 
introduce them to business terms. So I have little breakout definitions. So I use it in the sentence and then I have like a breakout definition. And in some cases, I feel like it needs a bigger, this is what it means. So in Disney, which was one of my first books, there's a whole little breakout two pager of sales, revenue and profit. Kids should just understand that basic thing. In Lego, there's a whole little breakout of building a brand name because it was really unique what Lego did to create a brand name and build their brand name. And that was very unusual for back then. And so I actually pulled some information from one of Kevin Keller's textbooks. I think it was like a Kotler and Keller textbook. And I sourced it from there and I explained how do you come up with a different brand name and what does it mean? And so it's really cool that it literally is like MBA level stuff that I'm putting in there. And then in some cases, my books are illustrated, which helps bring a visual Mm -hmm. aspect to it, which I think is important. In my latest book, which is like middle grade, junior high, that one's not illustrated, but it still has the breakout definitions and things like that. Have your kids served as early readers and advisory (laughs) board? You'd like to think they did, right? (laughs) That would be a good story. (laughs) (laughs) I have three children, twin girls who are now 17 and my son is 14. When I was writing from an idea to one of my daughters was a huge help. She read every single book. She had suggestions. I think she was in sixth or seventh grade at the time. So it was like perfect. She was just a little older than the target audience. My son, who at the time was like my first, second grade when I first started writing them, but then third, fourth, he loved my books once they were finished. That's no help in the editing process. (laughs) Actually, the two biggest helpers were my parents. The skeptical mom. Yes. So my father, from the business aspect, he was great. He read it through the eyes of, you know, an investment banker and a finance guy. And my mom read it through the eyes of an early childhood educator. And so it just came together really nicely. So they were great. One of the things I wonder about, you kind of answered a little bit, I guess, but how do you get across the points you're getting across without dumbing it down too much? You're simplifying it, of course, because there's only so much they could know. But you also want to respect them. You know what I mean? You don't want to make it so oversimplified, too childish. In fact, even though they're children, I don't think they like to read childish things. They like to read something that makes them feel like they're learning something. How do you find that sweet spot? It's hard. I would say the first drafts I had, they were too hard. And the editor kept saying, remember, these are 10-year-olds. Let's pick age 10. So I think just because of all my years of case writing, I don't dumb it down too much. I don't think my problem is it's too easy. I think if anything, I get pushed to let's back up. They don't know what that word means. Let's explain that. But it is great. And just on that whole point of respecting the kid and they want to learn. And a lot of feedback I get from parents and teachers is the reluctant reader who just don't like to read. It's like these books are something they've never read before. There's never been a book about how Nike came to be. My kid loves sports. He doesn't want to read, but oh my gosh, Mm -hmm. Phil Knight's his new hero because he just learned how he built this company. And I also get a lot of feedback for readers who might be an older kid, but having some reading struggles. Mm -hmm. This is still an interesting topic because it's respectful. It's interesting. It's something they don't know about. And also younger kids who might be exceptional readers, sometimes when they pick up older books, there's content in there that you really don't want a younger kid to be reading. But again, this is interesting business stuff. Even though my sweet spot is eight to 11, it really does have the standard deviation on either side, just where kids do love these books. The feedback that you get will come from parents, come from on the spot when you're there in the school. But do kids also write you sometimes? They do. And I actually save every single letter I get, which is really cool. So I have a cabinet that's kind of overflowing. Kids will write me or send me emails, but the letters are the best. What do they say? They'll say things like, you're my favorite author, which is pretty typical, or I love your books. But then they'll say, I loved how Walt Disney had Steamboat Willie have sound. They'll pick like one fact out of it. Or Mm -hmm. I love how the minifigure was created to exactly fit the Lego system. Find one little fact that just stuck with them. And it's pretty fun to see that. So those are kind of my favorite ones. And then they'll always draw a picture too. Usually there's a picture along with it. Yeah, I'm glad you're keeping those. Those are special. At some point, you may end up having an entire room to dedicate for this. And that's when it gets complicated. What about the companies or people in these companies themselves? Do you ever hear from them? Because you're representing and telling a story about them. You understand branding. These companies, they're very well-known companies. They got a lot of people worried about their brand and focus on their brand being conveyed the way they want it to be conveyed. 
Yeah. So from an idea to you've got Google, Disney, Nike, Lego. I did not interview anyone at the company. I used, I kind of did it like a case study. I used public information, annual reports, that kind of thing. My goal was never to tell bad side of the story. I mean, I have to keep in mind that the goal of these books is to teach business and entrepreneurship or introduce business and entrepreneurship to kids. It's not to talk about some scandalous thing that happened. For that reason, I don't think any of these companies would ever have a problem with anything I wrote because I really do put it in a nice entrepreneurial business education type of story. No one has ever confronted me from those four companies. No one's ever talked to me, confronted me, written me anything, which actually kind of surprises me because I know there's a lot of tough alums who work for these companies. And so I've actually been surprised that especially the people I know who work there haven't reached out and said, oh, this is a great book or like, ooh, I don't know about that fact there, you know, or whatever. (laughs) But it's really been just very quiet from those companies. My idea makers, which is about 15 different women. So you've got Sarah Blakely, Ann Wojcicki, Jasmine Crow. Stacey Madison of Stacey Pita Chips, Kathleen King of Tate's Bake Shop, some really great people. I interviewed eight of the 15, which was a little scary for me, actually, because it was the first time I was not just using public information, public interviews. I was really worried I wasn't going to get it right, especially if they were telling me something that maybe they'd never told anyone before. Again, my purpose is to tell a great story and to teach kids about business and entrepreneurship. Some of these women just love it. Stacey Madison from Stacey's Pita Chip loves the story and she loves the book. I think she said she bought 20 copies to give to her friends and family and she's really proud of it. So it's been fun. And of course, these are smaller brands for the most part in those books. But yeah, they're still worried about how their story comes off. But I do a pretty good job of back checking and getting it right. And yeah, just trying to keep it in mind that the purpose of these books is to introduce this to kids. You know, in learning about entrepreneurship, one of the things that people learn is that a lot of things don't work, as you know, that they fail. I wonder whether you've tried to teach that lesson because every kid, every person stumbles all sorts of ways. And there are a lot of companies that started off okay and didn't do so well. I mean, some of them is for reasons that you probably don't want to write about some of the scandals of recent times in Silicon Valley. But there are plenty of other examples, I think. So have you talked about that? Have you written that or something you're thinking about telling a story that doesn't have a happy ending? Certainly there's failures along the way in all of these stories. Phil Knight with Blue Ribbon Sports was a failure, you know, with Lego. There were many failures along the way. So that's a really important message because I think when kids see the brand name like, oh, Google, they think, oh, it's just easy. I'll just create Google. But they got to understand like it's not easy. And these are a lot of the failures that happen along the way and the people that can persevere through them. That's one of my biggest messages. It is going to be hard and there will be failures. And I show rather than tell, I show how they persevere through the failures and the tough times. Very interesting to write a story of a failure, kind of like that movie that ends. Wait, there's no happy ending, you know? Yeah, those movies don't sell too well. So maybe you don't want to do that. (laughs) I don't know. But there's a lot of learning in that. (laughs) There's a lot of learning in it. It's really interesting. I don't know. Maybe I'll pitch that to my agent. And if your agent doesn't like it, just blame me, your old professor. (laughs) No, it's all right. I have lots of ideas that fail, so I'm good with failure. (laughs) (laughs) Loie, can you maybe read a little excerpt from one of the books, Take Your Pick? Sure. One of the original books, because I want to talk a bit more about idea makers in a minute. Maybe one on, you could pick it, whether it's Disney or Lego or whichever one. Okay, well, I'm not prepared for this, so let's see. Because I think it'd be good for our listeners, even a half a page, not more than a minute of reading would be fine, just to get a feel for what do these books sound like? Okay. I'm going back between Lego and Disney. There's a section in Disney that I read, but I feel like everyone knows the Disney story. So maybe I'll read from Lego. Do you want some backstory on this? Yeah, let's set it up. So Lego was founded by Danish carpenter named Ole Christensen. He, after several troubles and the depression and the death of his wife, switched gears from being a carpenter to making wooden toys. And he created the company Lego, which was a word he made up. And it's a cool story. The word Lego comes from. Long story short, he is now an old man. And one of his four children, a man named Godfrey, is helping to run the company as he's getting older. They have heard for many years that the wooden toys are really wonderful and they're high quality, but wood absorbs germs and it's hard to clean. And Olay and Godfrey are starting to think about, can we make toys out of a different material? So they buy a plastic molding machine. And one of the things they start to make are plastic bricks, but the bricks that they are making at the time are hollow. So they don't stick together. You can only make a tower. It's a complete failure. So Godfrey is really stuck on this brick. 
and he knows there's something more, but he doesn't know what. And Ole, his health is declining. He's kind of checked out a little bit. So this is kind of the aha moment when Lego becomes Lego. So mm-hmm. here we are from an idea to Lego. In 1954, Godfrey took a ferry ride across the North Sea to attend the London Toy Fair in England. It was there that he met a toy buyer who worked for Magasin du Nord, the largest department store in Copenhagen, Denmark. The toy buyer insisted that there was a problem with toys in the world. Toys, he explained, needed a system, or in other words, a way to work together. This idea intrigued Godfrey. He thought long and hard about how Lego could create a system for toys. After Godfrey returned to Denmark, he had an idea. Godfrey decided that Lego bricks were going to become the foundation for a new system of toys. And instead of producing pre-made toys, such as yo-yos, dolls, or wooden vehicles, Lego would develop a way for children to build their own toys using Lego's bricks. The system part of the idea meant that going forward, every individual Lego brick would always fit together with every other Lego brick, no matter what shape or size it was or when or where it was made. The system also meant that Lego would provide instruction behind building a particular design, but also give children the freedom to build whatever they wanted with the bricks. And the more bricks a child owned, the more possibilities he or she could create. The idea was revolutionary. So it's just kind of like a little excerpt. And then it goes on to they've created the system, but the bricks are still falling apart. So now like every brick is fitting together, but they're still falling apart. So then Godfrey figures out how to make, as I hold up a Lego brick, (laughs) I'm very prepared. I have lots of virtual authorizations, but the stud and tube design. So where the tubes are in the bottom and the studs are on top, and it's essentially a physics friction problem that he has solved where the space in between the tubes and the side of the wall are just a little too small for those studs on top. So it's friction that holds all Lego bricks together. And it's really a fascinating physics problem he solved. It's like the perfect amount of friction where they hold together, but you can break them apart. And the rest of the chapter talks about him creating that. So actually, that's a great story for lots of people who don't know that that's pretty much the key moment that made Lego into the Lego that's around the world. And most of our kids probably who are listening have played with them along the way. And then you mentioned this friction thing and the scientific side to that. I wonder whether that gets picked up sometimes because you put in these clues, right? I would imagine that for teachers that um, are teaching some type of more science, like a basic science class, not doing physics in fourth grade, but whatever they're doing, they could talk about that as well. I bet they do. So that was great. That brings it to life, Loie. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Now, let's talk a bit more about the idea maker ideas. You interviewed, I think you call it 15 fearless female entrepreneurs. Correct. And you wanted to profile women in particular as leaders and as entrepreneurs. And what were the patterns or commonalities that you saw or you learned from your interviews about the challenges that they faced? Did they fall into you know, a couple of different categories or was 15 really different types of stories? Definitely some themes there. So the first, the importance of who the woman was as a kid and what influences really changed her life. So that could be parents, could be an experience, it could be a passion they had, but they all had something that really, you know, when they first start telling their story, it's when I was a kid, you know, this is what I was like. A lot of them talked about it was hard being a woman. A lot of times they were the only woman in the room. One of the things that I love my From an Idea to book series, but each of these four companies were founded by white men. As I talk to kids all over the country, I'm looking at kids of color and I'm looking at girls. I want them to be able to see themselves in these books. You can through their passion, but I wanted them to like really see themselves. So some of the women who came from different countries or they were black, they said, I was the only black person in the room. I was the only person of color. I was the shortest person in the room a foot and a half. I just had to hold it together and just be brave. I kept hearing like, I just had to be brave and I had to be okay with if they say no and one no is not going to stop me. So fearless was a great word for me because that was such a common theme throughout all of them. I would say almost in every case, there was a time where the thought of, should I give up? Is this just too much? Am I taking on too much? And obviously in each case, they didn't and they persevered. So that's a common theme that I wanted to get across. Another one 
was going against what the family wanted them to do. I saw that across the board, whether it was they didn't understand, you're really smart, you're gonna be a doctor or a lawyer. You know, those are your two options. And rebelling being an entrepreneur and not really the family not understanding what that meant or you're not smart enough to do that or that's too risky. It was really interesting. That was a very common theme. There was not a lot of family support at the time with a lot of these women. If you're not getting the family support and you're not getting the support in the room where you're pitching your idea, it's hard. For example, like Heidi Zach told me, she's got the company Third Love, which was a new way of thinking about bras. She said that she would be in a room and it would be all men. No one's ever worn a bra in their life. And they'd yell out into the hallway to their assistant, come on in here. What do you think of this bra? And she's like, it was horrible. Horrible for the woman who got called in. Horrible for these men with like their entire opinion is going to be based on this one woman. Mm -hmm. So she learned to redo her pitches. So when she had a room of only men, it was less about why her bra was so much better, but about a financial angle, which they seemed to embrace better. And then when there were women in the room, she would talk about how different her bra was and all these kind of things. Being able to adapt for the different audience, being able to just persevere through all the no's and the hard times, and then just being brave enough to go against maybe what other people didn't support. Those were some common themes. Those are actually great lessons, great themes for any entrepreneur. They knew you were writing this for a younger audience. Do you think that they came up with or that affected the way they responded or the examples they were searching for? Or you asked them specifically, this is the audience here. It's not the Wall Street Journal you're talking to. Or did they say what you think they may have said if you were a reporter for the journal writing a profile about them? When I reached out, it's very hard to get hold of some of these women too. Like Sarah Blakely is very hard to get hold of. So I didn't interview her, but fortunately there's a lot written about her. But some of these women, when I reached out and I told them this was a book for junior high, middle grade girls, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I got the exact same response from every single one of them, which was, I get so many requests for interviews, dozens a day, hundreds a week. And I always say no, unless it's probably the Wall Street Journal, whatever. But no one's ever said they want to write a children's book about me. And I would love to take this interview because I wish there was a book when I was a kid who not only taught me what entrepreneurship was, but had a person who looked like me in the book. I need to do this. So that girl who looks like me can say, oh my gosh, she did it. And yeah, I have parents just like that. Or I came from the same country or I speak the same language or I get teased that exact same way at school. All of a sudden, when they were saying that to me, I'm like, oh my gosh, I have a very important job here. (laughs) I have to tell their story really well because it's never been told to kids before. That was really touching to me, actually. And so I hope I've done it justice and I hope they're proud of it. So far, I know they're all busy, but I sent them all the book and with a thank you card. So I think that they were telling me stories, especially maybe as their childhood or the struggles that they went through, perhaps more in detail because they wanted to make sure that this future generation Mm -hmm. understands like, hey, I get it. I went through the same thing and I got through it and you can too. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. It makes a lot of sense. And I guess there are some that wanted to keep on helping because when I was looking around a little bit online, I saw this kid's idea tank, like a shark tank thing that you created, which I thought, wow, that's so cool. And I thought, let me take a little glance. I don't know, an hour went by watching this thing. I don't know how that ever happened. I wasn't planning to spend an hour watching. (laughs) And these little kids are making these pitches and some of them are reading, maybe many of them were reading their prep, but some were just kind of ad-libbing. I thought, wow. So tell us a little bit about that idea, where that came from. The kid's idea tank. Yeah. So it's funny being an MBA in the children's book world because I see it very differently. I see this industry very differently. It's kind of a slow dinosaur of an industry. And when my first books, this is right before COVID, this is 2019. My first books came out in the spring of 2019. I was on book tour. I was in these classes. It was amazing. And then all of a sudden you get to June 1st and school's over and it's like, huh, (laughs) <laughs> you know, because my book's not a summer read, really. I mean, you can read it for summer, but most kids are reading it during school and whatever. I actually had a librarian come up to me and she said, so what do you do during the summer with your books? Like you must do something that's different than your book talks. And I go, oh my God, that's exactly what I should do. I should do like a Shark Tank for kids. And I said, do you want to sponsor it? And she looked at me with deer in headlights. She goes, what do you mean? I was like, I don't know. Let's have a prize of like a thousand dollars. And she's like, oh my gosh, I'm a librarian. Like I don't have that kind of money. Don't worry about it. I'll get some sponsors. So I literally 
sent out an email to some CEOs, CMOs in my town. I need judges and I need sponsors. And I had Rocky Wirtz, the owner of the Blackhawks, on my first panel. I had Thomas Parkinson, the founder of Peapod, on my first panel. Like, it was so cool. And we had sponsors and we did it in person in the Chicago area for that first year. So then second year COVID hit and we did it a virtual thing, which was nice because we could reach out to kids all over the country. And then the third year, again, we did it virtually, which was, again, wonderful. I did start to realize, though, that you got two different types of kids that do the Kids Idea Tank. You have the kid who's already selling jewelry or candles or cookbooks or whatever, and they've kind of got it figured out already and they're going to do just fine. And then you've got the kid who has an idea. And this was what my passion was. And they just don't know how to share it. They just need like a voice. And those are the kids I love. Those are the kids who would have never shared their idea if Kids Idea Tank didn't exist. And so what I found was when I did it in person, I found more of those kids. And when I did it online, I found more of the kids who already kind of got it figured out. And so I actually pulled back the reins this year. I decided not to do it because I want to relaunch it next year. Back in the Chicago area, I don't care if people fly in for it. It's great. But I wanted to do it in person again, where kids can actually talk to the judges face to face and pitch in front of a live audience. Kids are getting very comfortable pitching to a computer and there's not really a lot of consequences. And I want to bring back that in person. You know, you got to talk to people. You got to pitch to people up on stage, answering questions from Rocky Wirtz. Like, that's scary and that's good. <laughs> And that's something that will last you forever. So that's kind of the future of plan is actually to bring it back to the beginning. But oh, these kids are so amazing and their ideas are great. And it's hilarious. I have a committee of people who help me go through all the video pitches and pick our finalists. And it's just a great night. It's like our favorite night of the year. <laughs> so there are two things that come to mind from what you just said. One is you can continue and probably will continue to do this kind of Shark Tank event. But you also can create a template, almost like the software, without necessarily meeting in a tech format for schools around the country to do this themselves, which I would imagine would be attractive to a lot of the schools that you've already have relationships with, but even others. So you could be the mega one, maybe the winners of schools that do this could all be invited for the big one that you're going to do. But anyway, it's just an idea of leveraging it. It's about scaling, isn't it? Yeah. Another nice business term. Yeah. Because I think it's a great idea. And Shark Tank is so well known. So many parents know it that I think there'd be some interest. The other thought that comes to mind is maybe even it's bigger than that one because it's for every kid, which is to help kids tell their own story, which you understand as someone who knows marketing and branding. And you're telling the story of the people that you're writing about and you're doing it for the reasons you're doing it. And it'd be great if every kid knew how to tell their story. It doesn't have to be a Lego story with, you know, incredible success. It could be anything. And figuring out or helping kids to do that, that would be a real gift. And really practical for them in life and very reaffirming as well. It sounds like the kids that are on the kids tank thing, they're telling their story to some extent and in the context of a business idea, but it doesn't have to only be a business idea. It could be just who you are and what you are as an individual. I see a lot of upside for that idea. So there you go. More free advice. <laughs> well, here's a funny Shark Tank story for you. So as part of my author visits, I kind of conclude with, I should bring up Shark Tank and I say why I think it's a great show just to watch because you pick up business terms and you can analyze these ideas and see for yourself if you think it's a good idea or not, learn from the judges or the investors. And so I say, so let's watch a little clip from Shark Tank and mm -hmm. let's analyze it. So I show them Scrub Daddy, which is, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a little like smiley sponge and it's made from a different material, doesn't oh, yeah. scratch surfaces. So it's actually the best-selling product ever to come out of Shark Tank. He got a deal with Lori or whatever. It's great. I show it. We have a good laugh and everything. A couple of years ago, I was traveling. I'm in my hotel room late at night, just bored. And I end up emailing the founder, Aaron Krauss, a note. And I just say, hey, you don't know who I am, but I'm a children's author. And I show your clip at my author visits. And just, hey, if you ever want to chat, here's my phone number. He calls me literally two minutes later. Who are you? Like, what do you do? And everything. <laughs> told him again. And he said, this is unbelievable. I would have given anything for someone to tell me what an entrepreneur was when I was 10 or to tell me what it takes because I had to make a lot of mistakes mm -hmm. when I was just getting through to where I am today. And he told me his story and where the idea came from and all that kind of stuff. And the next thing you know, he has sent me I don't know, 20 cases of Scrub Daddy sponges for me to give away at my author visit. So every author visit I go, I can't give every kid a sponge, but I give every teacher in the entire school mm -hmm. a Scrub Daddy sponge after we show it. And the kids go wild, the teachers <laughs> go wild. I still have cases of these sponges up in my attic. It's just so great. But it's just another example of people embracing this whole concept and really supporting me and my mission and everyone just kind of getting on board these days. It's really cool. It is. And it sounds like there's a lot more to go. You're going to continue 
continue to write the same types of stories or is there a new project in the works? Yeah, so I have a picture book, probably my one and only, but I have a picture book coming out in 2023. I wrote it with Kathleen King, the founder of Tate's Bake Shop. So actually when the idea for Idea Makers was pitched, Random House wrote back and said, we love Kathleen's story, but could you write a picture book with it? Could you write it with Kathleen? And so I called her and she said, I would love that. She has lots of nieces and nephews, no children of her own, but she wanted her story to be told in a picture book. And so we have a book called Cookie Queen, coming out and her story is really cool. So when she was 11 years old, she was living on a farm. They were very poor in New York. And her father, whose name is Tate, came to her and said, Kathleen, you're 11 years old. You're going to run the farm stand now. So you're going to sell the eggs and the fruit and the vegetables. And if you bake something, you can keep all the profit from what you bake. But everything else, you know, goes back to the farm. But the baking thing, you can keep the profit. So she's, what do I bake? I'm 11 years old. So she pulls out the Nestle Toll House cookie recipe. She makes those cookies and she doesn't like them because they're too soft. They're too gooey. They're just not how she would make them. So at 11, she starts to experiment and she goes to other farm stands and she starts to see what the competition does and how can she make her cookie better and more delicious than everyone else's. And it's a picture book about her creating her cookie. And she actually created these big, huge flat cookies and she priced them. Her dad helped her price them. I think she did six for a dollar or something like that. I can't remember exactly, but it was like a deal too good to pass up. And there's so many little business terms in there, but it's for a younger audience. And she ended up making so much money from her cookies that she bought a car. So she didn't even like own a brand new pair of socks. Like they were very, very poor. She could afford a brand new car when she turned 16. She put herself through college on her cookie money. She's such a great success story. She's such a hardworking person. That's coming out in 2023. It's about two years for children's books from when you start them to when they actually get put in the bookstore. And then I am working on another very similar book series. What happened with From an Idea to is the publisher during COVID got bought out by HarperCollins. So sometimes when those things happen, you know, plans for a series kind of change. So I am working on a new startup series, very similar. But, you know, I keep hearing from kids. They want to hear the stories of, you know, usually the last 10 minutes of an author visit is, can you write about Tesla? Can you write about Nintendo? Can you write about Apple? And it's just, thank you. You're giving me my next book, you know. <laughs> so working on that. Yeah, so that'd be great. Yeah, there's no shortage of amazing stories that keep coming out, including looking at companies from other countries as well. You want to have a kind of diversified leaders that you're sharing. People could see themselves in it because there are great ideas everywhere in the world. Absolutely. So, Loie, time to wrap up. My last question is always an advice question. And it's an advice to yourself if you could magically go back when you were, say, 20 years old. So not eight, although you could answer it that way to your target market, eight or 10 years old. But when you were 20, if you could magically go back and talk to yourself, lean over to the 20-year-old Lowy and say, if there's one thing you want to know or do or think about, what might it be? What would be the advice to yourself at that young age as you think about it now? I think I would just tell myself to keep believing in doing something that will make a difference, that it will all work out and it's all going to come together. I think I had it kind of figured out at age 20. I was pretty confident and had a plan and life was pretty good. But I would say the hardest part time for me was when I had gotten my MBA and I had done the traditional MBA job and then I had to pull the ripcord on that. And I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, balancing work and life and a husband who was an entrepreneur and I'm writing case studies and I'm thinking to myself, what have I done? I am so educated. I have great work experience and I'm writing case studies. I had classmates who were becoming CMOs and CEOs and very successful. And I'm thinking to myself, did I waste all that money in business school? Like, what? What am I doing? But it's pretty cool just keeping on believing in an idea and holding tight and doing something different is totally okay. Yeah. I think that's just the biggest lesson I've learned is it's pretty cool. Continue to believe that it's okay to do it differently and take a different path. That's a lesson that could be in any one of your books for 10-year-olds. But I have a feeling 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s that are listening, they get that lesson too. Loie, thank you so much for being on the Sidcast, sharing your story and some of your stories as well. Really interesting. And we'll put into the show notes lots of links to your stuff so people can find it. Maybe buy some of those books for their kids. That's wonderful. Thank you for having me. It was a great time. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. 
The Sitcast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please consider giving us a five-star review, and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.